So by the time we get to this section, of scripture we've been through so much in the book of first uh, Samuel and it starts uh, seemingly on a high note with with positives the children of Israel were sort of in a good state and Samuel had come in it was a time of prosperity people were traveling to the temple and worshiping and then God raised up Samuel because Eli's sons were no good and we worked our way through and we saw how the people of Israel began to demand we want to be like the nations around us. We want to have a king to lead us out. And in so doing, they rejected God as their king who was going out before them and giving their victories in battle. It was necessary, and God granted, that okay, you can have a king, but that king was supposed to still be obedient to God. Not do what he wanted, when he wanted, and how he wanted. But he was to do what he was called to do in submission and obedience to God. One of the challenging things he faced was he was told, when you go out to battle now, you come against the Amorites, you need to come against them, and you need to wipe them off the face of the earth. Every man, every woman, every child, every baby, and then it lists also all their animals. And the scripture reminded us that when that event unfolded, they did not do that. Saul himself, together with all the people, decided, well, we will kill and destroy all the sick animals, the lame animals, the undesirable ones. We will destroy all of the people, except we will keep the king alive, which was often done in, in that era, in that culture, so they could keep the king, and they could make him sort of like a pawn and a puppet, turn him into a court jester at times. If you get a former king to be your servant, then you are a big man. And you can mock him and you can mistreat him. And so in absolute disobedience to God's clear and simple words, the people did what they wanted rather than what God said. As a result of that, it was told to Saul, the kingdom will be torn from you and given to another who is more worthy. In the course of time, he began to recognize this. It seems like that one that it's going to be given to, that one who is more worthy, might be David. And we know that David had become a close friend with Saul's son, Jonathan. David had married into the family by marrying the daughter, Michael. The things were going well. He was serving in the king's court as a musician. He was also serving as a very successful general. But as he served, and he served humbly, and he served faithfully, the appreciation for David from the people was exceeding their appreciation for Saul. And that jealousy stirred up. And then we have that series of time where Saul is just hunting down and pursuing and going after David. As we come to this section here, it really picks up from where it ended two chapters before, where Saul is now facing off against the Philistines for battle. Now in the two really two other major episodes like this that have happened. The first one, he and Israel were delivered by David having that great victory over Goliath. The second one, 
They were delivered by Jonathan, his son's boldness in going across, just he and his armor bearer, into the garrison of the Philistines and, and destroying that, that initial party and throwing the rest into confusion. Here they're arrayed against them once again, so you would think there was, should be some level of confidence. We got this. But that's not the case. Because remember, as they were uh, coming out to battle and facing these circumstances, uh, he wasn't sure what to do. No one was there to answer his question. He, he pled with God. There was no answer. He asked the remaining prophets, Samuel being dead, and they said, we got nothing. So he went and found himself a sorceress, who we call the witch at Endor, and had her call Samuel from the dead to give him counsel. He wanted to know what God would have him do. And he sought to find out what God's will was by directly violating the will of God. God said, never, ever go to sorcerers or soothsayers or fortune tellers or necromancers. You don't do that. If you do that, you're to be cut off from among the people. But he, here is Saul in, in this desperation. I need to know God's will. I need to know what God wants for me. Even if it means I'm going to have to do what he says I should never do because he's not answering me how I want, when I want. I'm going to do it my way and then somehow force God to meet me at my sin and serve me in my sin. Good plan? Not so much. Because we have, when he does come back from the dead, we have this statement. I'm back in 1 Samuel chapter 28, so we can remember what Saul, what Samuel, coming out of the grave, says to him as a message from God. 1 Samuel chapter 28, of which 31 directly follows. So, verse 17. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. So now it's clear who's getting it. It's no longer speculation or uncertainty and jealousy. Now it's clear, but it's clear at a time where he's not going to have any more opportunity to try to do anything about that. But I would say this. Even if in his mind, oh, now I know it's David. Now I can do something about it. All right, if somebody knows exactly what is the plan and will of God, by knowing that, can he somehow now overcome it? Does that make any sense? No. Even if it had been told to him from day one back when he defied the, uh, the order of God, it's going to be taken away from you and given to David, the son of Jesse. He still would not have been able to successfully destroy David. Why? Because no man, no matter how hard he tries, can ever overcome the will of power and purposes of God. It can't be done. 
And here he's told very specifically to David, because you did not obey the, obey the voice of your Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath on, I said the Amorites, it's the Amalekites, forgive me. Therefore the Lord has done this to you this day. Moreover, listen to verse 19, the Lord will also give Israel with you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. That is very strong language. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, says a dead man. Now, I just want to set this out as the first thought, and it is under the heading of veracity, which is not a word we commonly use, so let me just simplify it. Truthfulness. Whatever God says is true. When God says he is going to do something, he's going to do it. Let me simplify it. Every word of God proves true. Every promise of God proves true. Every threat from God proves true. Everything from God proves true. I'm hoping that made the point. I mean, there's a lot of redundancy, a lot of repetition there, so we understand that God always proves true. Now, on occasion, some were confused. Jonah was a little confused because Jonah went there and said, You Nineveh, you're done. In a few days, and God is destroying you. And then Nineveh wasn't destroyed. Threat, judgment, punishment pronounced but then not carried out. And Jonah was upset. God, I knew you would send me there and I would proclaim it. And then you are such a merciful, patient, long-suffering God that I knew that you wouldn't necessarily carry it out. Now, what's interesting is the scriptures are full of places where God has carried out his threats. But he also says this in the scriptures. If at any point I declare against a nation judgment and that nation repents of the deeds that they were doing and their acts, then I will relent of the disaster that I proclaimed against them. So sometimes, and this was the confusion for the prophet Jonah, sometimes God has the pronouncement of disaster proclaimed in order to stir the people to repentance. Sometimes it's proclaimed because it is the absolute purpose that will be carried out. Well, which one is it on any given occasion? God knows. Well, what about us? Well, we don't necessarily know because here's the beauty of all this. God always gets to be God. And we never get to be God. It will always continue to be that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
It's going to always be that his judgments are inscrutable and his ways beyond finding out. There is always going to be some measure of mystery as to why exactly God allowed that, why exactly God is doing that. I would have expected different. I would have thought differently. But that said, we have enough occasions in the scripture to understand that, that God is not wavering or waffling. And with absolute clarity and specificity, he declares particular disasters and they happen. They happen in exactness. I mean, this is not the first time. If we were to go back in this same book of 1 Samuel, go back to um, the earlier chapters... We would see these kinds of certain things uh, pronounced in specificity. For example, when the kings were was going to be selected, 1 Samuel 9 and 10. God says to Samuel, Behold, I am sending you a man who will be king. Go to the gates today and he will meet you there. And what's interesting is, Saul had gone on this circuitous route in search of missing donkeys, ready to go back home when the servant who had gone with him said, there's a seer, a prophet in this town. First, let's go there before we go back. But the amount of time, the route that they took, the specific day that this man, Saul, would be coming through the gates into that town. How did God know that? And here's how he knows it. Not simply by foreseeing it. Because did the donkeys just happen to get lost at that time? Did they just happen to go the wrong way, a different way than the donkeys? Did they just happen to find themselves in the nearby city to where there was a prophet? Did it just so happen that his servant knew that there was a prophet in that place? That is a remarkable list of coincidences that so wonderfully just happened. Hopefully you hear the tone of my voice. That there's no coincidence. God is working even in the seeming mysteries of those circumstances. And this is the one. And he comes, he meets him. And Saul is not sure. And as Saul's leaving, he says, look, in case you're not sure, three signs are going to happen to you to confirm that you are being called as king. The first thing that's going to happen is as you're headed back home right now, two men are going to meet you by Rachel's tomb. And they're going to tell you your donkeys have been found. Now your dad's worried about you. I mean, God is indicating to him exactly where he's going to meet these people. The exact location on the transit back home, how many there will be, and exactly what they're going to say. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? And then after that, you're going to keep going. And you're going to come to the oak at Tabor. And there you're going to meet three men who are on their way to Bethel, the house of God, to worship and offer sacrifices. What? Again in transit, specific number of men headed to a place, and they're going to say this to you. How's that? How does God know all of that? How does he coordinate all of that? 
And then you're going to go a little bit further and you're going to run into a school of prophets. And not only are you going to meet them, but they're going to come to you prophesying and you're going to join them. And you're going to join those prophets and start prophesying yourself. Specificity of action, of location, of numbers, of details. How does something like that happen? And here's how I'll tell you. Every word of God proves true. And here's, here's the beauty of it. I can say something. I can, I can even maybe at times uh, make a promise to someone. We've all heard stories of, of someone traveling or someone working something and they say, look, to maybe to their children, I will be home for your birthday. But what happens if there's a blizzard, a snowstorm, flights are canceled, roads are closed? Despite a man's best intention and absolute commitment, he can still fall short of fulfilling his own words and promises. See, this problem will never, ever, ever happen to God. Why? Well, what if a blizzard happens? A blizzard doesn't just happen. He sends it. Well, what if there's a storm and a tempest and, and, and a boat is being tossed on the sea? Uh, he can rebuke the wind and water and cause it to be still. Well, what if there's no boat? He can walk across the water. Whatever seeming thing that we could conceive of that might somehow get in God's way, it can't. Why not? He is God. I mean, we say that. Pretty much I believe every believer would say that. He is God. You know? And it's a simple statement that we are able to so easily say with so little thought. But He is God. God Almighty. Maker and Master. Lord of the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Everything doing his bidding. Everything working out his purposes. He is the God of glory. Do we realize that? I mean, oh my. And when we begin to consider that, we understand this is a God of all truth. He is a God who when he says something, he can be trusted. Even when it's things that people won't understand. When Jesus would say, for example, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again from the grave. Who can believe that? Well, the strange thing about it is, of course, none of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the council and the high priests of his day believed that. But more disappointingly, none of his disciples believed that either. The scriptures tell us repeatedly that when he rose from the dead and appeared to them, here they were still for joy disbelieving. When the women came and reported he's risen, just as he said, nah, it didn't happen. Because it just seems impossible. But that's, that's the beautiful reality, is because God is God, what may seem impossible, and what indeed is impossible for men, is possible for God. And so, 
Every word of God proves true. So if God says there is only one salvation, narrow is the way, few are those who will find it, and there is only one name above every other name. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. In Him alone is eternal life and the full forgiveness of sin. Even if a multitude of other voices come along, even if you take a poll around the nations and say, are there many ways? Even if laws are passed saying you have to acknowledge there are many ways, that does not change the fact there is one way. There is one Savior. There is one salvation. And that's it. And how do we know that? Because every word of God proves true. He's proved it time and time again, whether it is promises or whether it is threats. No man can hinder it. No man can delay it because God is God in his fullness. Now I want to go on to the second point here. Not only do we see veracity in this, but we see vengeance. Now vengeance is a, a negative theme in the minds of men, so it doesn't get a lot of play. Although, when we had our call to worship this morning, we heard a God of vengeance. Behold, he is coming with recompense. We were reading this morning uh, out of the scriptures in Romans chapter 2 concerning the way that God works. He will come with his recompense. For the wicked, he will pour out upon them the judgment that is due. For the righteous, those who are patient in well-doing, that we know is the operating uh, effect of God's grace. He will reward them with eternal life and blessing. We, we see that wonderful reality. But we do live in an age, and I, we don't want to miss this, where, and we glory in the mercy, the compassion, the patience, the graciousness, the forgiveness of God. And we don't want to make light of those things. If it were not for those things, brothers and sisters, I'm undone. <laughs> we are of all men most miserable if God was not merciful and forgiving. So praise God for that. But as much as we glory in that, and we know with, apart from that we have no hope and no standing, we do well to not forget that God is a God of vengeance. That even the grace in which we stand is the result of vengeance that has been poured out on Christ for our sake. You realize that, right? He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. But he bore our wrath that we might be, indeed are, forgiven in Him. But sometimes we are so focused on the forgiveness that is ours, we forget the vengeance that is His. You know, um, Be kind to one another, forgive one another, do not pay back evil for evil. These are all things we say, and these are all things that are true, and all things that are good, but the scriptures also do remind us in, in that same idea. For example, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, it says this. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, as Romans 12, 20. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on your head. This is your and my responsibility. Do good to our enemies. And we see that and we preach that and we teach that. But what we always pass by is the verse just before it. Which is verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You know, I find it uh, interesting to note that uh, Psalm 94 uh, begins like this. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. I've never heard a song like that before. <laughs> But this, this is a psalm in the scriptures. We don't generally sing it because it, it, it's, it's heavy. It's, it's meaty. And it's thick. And it doesn't appeal to our sensitivities and our humanity. But as a result of that, we kind of pass it by. Is it not true? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Is, that's, not an, that's an Old Testament quote, but a reiteration in the New Testament. It's not that the God of the Old Testament was a God of vengeance, and the God of the New Testament's a God of love. Have you heard that before? It's not true. God does not change. He's not a man that he should change. He is always the same. Indeed, His Son, Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father, what does it tell us concerning Him? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is unchanging. And so that means He is a God of vengeance. Hallelujah! We don't get a lot of response from that. There's not much clapping of hands in response. To that. But I'm saying that if we want to worship God in His fullness, and we want to even understand the rich mercy, the greatness of grace, you don't understand the richness and the greatness of these things that He's poured out upon us until you understand the wrath and vengeance He's poured out on Christ for us. You just don't... It doesn't mean much to you. That's why people so often play fast and light with their Christian faith and with their Christian walk because it, it's, it's, all about, it's all about forgiveness, it's all about love, it's all about these things. And, and love and forgiveness are very, very important facets and aspects. But the scriptures continually also remind us about vengeance. This vengeance is mine, says the Lord, is also repeated in the book of Hebrews. Um, in the book of Second uh, uh, Thessalonians, concerning the revelation of Christ, his coming again, it says God considers it uh, just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, it, it's difficult because here is the reality. I should not and cannot do paybacks. You did this to me. I'm going to get you too. I'm going to keep my eyes open. One day you... It's coming back on your head, I guarantee it. Well, hopefully I won't do that. But that mentality happens, right? And we're, we're not to do that. We leave vengeance 
for the Lord. But we, we, we so often in that mindset, and it's very important, parents telling their kids, don't you pay them back. You need to forgive him or her, your brother or sister, for what they did and, and not hold it against them. We instruct like that so much that somehow we think that we can hold God to that same notion of no paybacks. No, there's no paybacks for us, among us, because all paybacks are from God. And you'll note, much of the wrath and vengeance and the military acts of those under the old covenant were meant to express what? The wrath of God. He would send them out against... It, Saul was punished and indeed the kingdom torn from him because he did not serve to express the fierce wrath of God against them. Not a small and not a light thing. Oh Lord, God of vengeance. Oh God of vengeance. And I tell you, even as I think, think of that, it's still hard to imagine singing a song with an exultant spirit. God of vengeance. God of vengeance. Come and get them. And it just difficult to see. But listen, I'm still in 2 Thessalonians. Considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. And this is what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verse 8, as Christ comes, it's in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who did not know God and those who did not obey the gospel. I mean, we emphasize, and because it's going to be our experience, those of us who are in Christ, that blessed hope, that glorious appearing, we will be made like him, for we shall see him as we, he is. We will give up this body that is perishable and decayed, and we will have a glorified body, and we look forward to all of that blessedness that we forget that in that blessedness that attends to us at his coming, there's something else going on at his coming. With flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know him. That God is just, and God is a God of judgment. It's a strong truth that we, we do well not to forget. And, and this is exactly what happened it, to Saul. He disobeyed. He was told that it was going to be meted out to him, that he would be judged. And what happened? Tomorrow you and your sons will die. The very next day, his sons, as well as he, died. Vengeance declared. Judgment declared. Judgment disposed. It's going to happen. In all seriousness, it is going to happen. That's why we don't play light with it. And that's why I think we live in an era in which people have lost that sense of seriousness. They've lost that sense of it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because we have so exclusively emphasized his love and his loving 
positive characteristics in our minds. Uh, who's worried about that? Someday I'm going to have to stand and be judged by God. But you've told me over and over again, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. You know, and so uh, when I stand before him on the last day, all I've got to do is say, you love me. He told me. I'm good. Is that how it works? You know, it doesn't. And so that's why sometimes I think there's confusion because when we proclaim the good news of the gospel, when people don't even know the bad news of their present situation, it doesn't come across as good news. It, just, it comes across as inconvenient and undesirable. So I got to repent. And why is that? I, gotta, I, I don't understand. This is, no, not going to do it. The sentence is carried out and it's done in a very strong way. Look with me in verse 8 and following. Uh, we know that he, basically he is full of fear. He's wounded in the, in the midst of the battle. He's wounded badly by an arrow that pierces him exactly where we don't know. But it's, it's a wound that seems like it's possibly mortal. He cannot flee any longer. And so what does he do? He turns to his armor bearer and says, Kill me so that these men don't get me. Because he was afraid that his death would be very lengthy. You know, whatever methods and manners we've lived in, in the in the world, there have been a lot of very horrible means of murder with tremendous pain that precedes that perishing. Miserable. He didn't want any of that. So he tells this guy, look, I'm done. Can't get away. We've lost. Kill me. The armor bearer says, in no way, I'm not doing it. So then it tells us, Saul then fell on his own sword. And you can envision that however you want to. Turn it around, aim it, let the body go. He killed himself. And then his armor bearer, realizing he's also undone with nowhere to go, also killed himself. And so what's amazing is uh, his death effectively by the judgment of God ended up being self-inflicted. Here's a man who would, you would think is striving to escape the judgment of God, escape the demands of God. You can't. No matter how much you might think you can defy God, God can't even use your own hands against you. Wow. Would have thought. And they come in. The scripture tells us uh, there in verse uh, 7, 8 and following that they come into the, the land. They come in to strip the slain, verse 8. And they found Saul and his three sons fallen. They cut off his head and they strip his armor and send messengers throughout the land to the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols. If you look at the Septuagint there, the good news is the same word that we use for the gospel. You know, the good tidings. Here's the good news. This, this man who has been a problem for us and thwarted us on certain occasions, their king is done. Now we have way better news than that. But the, the way that this is done, it, it's, it's a frightening picture because the armor then is sent as, as a token trophy and treasure and put in the house of their false god. And the head is sent around on parade. 
Saul is dead. Saul is dead. Now what ultimately ends up happening to the head, we don't know. And so it obviously doesn't matter. But they, they parade this around. They celebrate. And here's what's shocking. They consider it good news by taking the armor and putting it in the house of Ashtaroth, their god. What is the understanding of the Philistines? The Philistines think their god granted them victory over Saul. That's their conclusion. That's why this trophy is put in the house of their God, a token of their appreciation for what they perceive as the victory wrought for them by their God. Is it true? We know that it's not true. We know that the reason why Saul lost is nothing to do with their God because their God is nothing. <laughs> It has everything to do with the true God who accomplishes everything that he pleases. But what's, what I want us to see, even just for a moment here, but didn't God know that by giving the Philistines victory over Saul, that they would perceive it as their God's victory over Israel and their God? Didn't God know that how they would misunderstand it and how they would take it? Why would he do like that? Why would he allow them to have this seeming victory that would lead them to this misunderstanding? It would deepen their false faith in a false God? Why? Well, again, for, in part, I'll say this. we got to be careful with the whys. Because God isn't bound to our demands and expectations. And the moment I'm thinking, it would have been way more effective for God's glory had he not done it that way. What am I doing at that point? I'm believing that my way is better than God's way. And my plan is better than God's plan. But God's plan, at least in part, at least for a fraction of people, only served to confirm them in their false belief, further bringing them under condemnation. How can it be? Again, I have to say, it can be because God is God. And though his purposes are mysterious to us, they are perfect. And so God is a God who demonstrates absolute veracity. God is a God who has shown himself to be a God of vengeance, among many other gracious truths. And further, I want to draw your attention to one more thought before we close out today. And that is in the closing verses, down in verse 10, or verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jebash-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there, and they took the bones, and they buried them and fasted for seven days. All right. 
I mean, just a simple little sentence there, but I want to, we, we've looked at the veracity of God, we've looked at the vengeance of God, and I, and I want us to see for a moment these valiant men of God. Because what they do, and I'm just going to say this, makes no sense to me. Because this is, this is my sure thought. When they go and get the bodies of Saul and his sons that are pinned to the wall of this town, and they pull them off and they bring them home, how does that help Saul? How does that help his sons? What's the resulting... Are they, are they going to be very thankful for the rest of their days? Well, no, because the rest of their days already finished before that began. So it, it seems so strange, but I just want to note this. First of all, these were the, the men of Jabesh Gilead are the ones that uh, early on, they were under attack. In the early days when it was declared that Saul was going to be king, and Nahash, the Ammonite king, came against them. They said, make a treaty with us. Please don't destroy us. And he said, I'll make a treaty with you. Every one of you gouge out your right eyes, and then I'll let you live. And the word was sent, and if you remember, Saul, filled with the Spirit, his anger was kindled, he sent out the messengers, the people of Israel gathered, and they came to Jabesh Gilead, and they delivered them from their enemy. In the face of sure destruction, sure defeat, and sure death, they were delivered from that, and the instrument of that deliverance was Saul. And so now, years after the fact, when Saul is dead and done, head removed, body pinned to the wall, these men, who the scripture speaks of as valiant men, I'm just going to give you a, a, a few thoughts for a moment here. This idea of valiant men is a very challenging phrase. This word that's translated valiant here is translated in different ways in the, in the Old Testament. And I just give you a sense of it in terms of an overview. In Exodus and in, in Genesis, this term, instead of being translated valiant men, is translated able men. Choose able men and appoint them with you to judge or, or lead these people, uh, Jethro says to, um, uh, to Moses. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 18, before they're going to cross the river Jordan into the land, it says, your men of valor shall cross over armed first. So you have the phrase valiant men, able men, men of valor. In other places it's translated brave men. In other places, worthy men. So it, it, the, the idea that is being conveyed is, is men with some substance to them. Men with some significance and some character to them. Now, what, what I find interesting in this, in this little picture that's given here, and, and from a human angle, I look at it and I say this. All right, men, you're going into the territory of the enemy, putting your very life in peril for those who are already you're delivering their bodies but effectively that's it 
I don't understand it. They're already dead, and why would you die when there's nothing you can do? Because they're already dead. That seems to make sense to me. But to them, they were stirred by not simply logic, but a loyalty and a love. I tell you, in my experience, loyalty and love often overcomes logic, doesn't it? And just causes us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. In, in, in effect, I would say this. The grace of God at work in the life of us as believers, if we're living faithfully and we're working out our salvation, the world is going to look upon us and that grace that's being manifest through us and they're going to say, I don't understand why you're doing this. I don't understand the benefit of it. I don't understand what it really actually accomplishes. I don't get it. I don't understand why you're putting yourself through that. I don't understand why you're denying yourself that. I don't understand. I don't get it. That's what the world may say. Kind of as I'm saying with regard to these men. We say, yeah, because you love the world. We love the one who made the world. Our love and loyalty lies in another place. And so our love and loyalty is going to be for the sake of his glory for the sake of his name and not for ourselves not for our lives not for our ease not for our comfort these men are putting themselves in a difficult situation uh, where they have they have nothing to gain from it whereas we are in a very diff different situation isn't it? isn't it right because for us to die is gain to die for Saul, knowing what we know about Saul, and to continue to have that love and allegiance is astounding. But the fact that it's recorded is nonetheless demonstrative. Brothers and sisters, may God grant us that spirit of valor. And valor. Why? Even when it doesn't make sense to the world. Because of our love and loyalty to him. That's why the scripture says, I mean, I think we were even looking at it today in a number of places. In, in Mark 8, it says this. He told the crowd with him, verse 34, and his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So strongly it says these things. I mean, over in Luke 14, it says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Back in Mark 8, it said this. Let me get to verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever, whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. These men did what they did out of love and loyalty with nothing to gain, with no surety and no promises, and yet they risked their lives for it. I think there are, some, there are so many today, and maybe us among them, that say, Jesus is my Savior. He is the Lord of my life. And yet, when it comes to a need or in a, in a, in a moment of self-sacrifice, a, a moment of, of, of radical service, whatever it may be, what happens? Um, well, 
Now, I'm, I, I still love him, you know, and I'm not going to say not that much, but just not right now if we could, uh, you know. <laughs> but you wait later, I'll show you. Well, uh, here is, is the simple reality. Who demanded this of them? Who asked them to do it? That's, that's what I, what's interesting about these, these valiant men who were stirred up. There was no command of such. There was no obligation or necessity. This was the outpouring of their own hearts and love and loyalty to Saul. That's why I'm saying this again. It doesn't do any good to just say, tell believers, be ready to sacrifice. Be ready to love. Deny yourself. You know, we say those things as the scripture says them, but if, if that isn't the, the real heartfelt response of genuine love and loyalty, it ain't nothing. It ain't, it ain't real. It, it, it should be, it should, when you hear those, those commands, if they don't resonate with your heart, oh yes, we will gladly give our lives for the sake of his name. If there's some hesitation or there is, where, where's the valor? That men would show such valor and valiance for, for dead men. But we show valor and valence, uh, valiance, is it for a dead man? It's not for a king that has died and had his head severed. It is for a king who has died and risen again and sits enthroned forever. So when I, when I see their love, their loyalty, their allegiance, their diligence, and their sacrifice, I think, that should be nothing. Indeed, that really is nothing compared to what the grace of God does in the hearts of people. We've been looking in Titus chapter 2 recently on our Tuesday nights, and we see that wonderful reality of Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us, to make us his own possession. His treasured people, those who are zealous for good works. Who made us that way? The same one who redeemed us, made us his, makes us zealous. He pours his spirit into our hearts. He pours his love into us. And we now what? We love him because he first loved us. And so the overflow of our life is love, is loyalty, is valor. We are those valiant people. And how do I know that? Well, because the scriptures actually say that. It tells us this in 1 John chapter 5, for, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I love that. Because it could have seemingly said our effort, could have seemingly said our works, could have seemingly said our faithfulness. But what does it say? Our faith. Praise God. But in the midst of praising God for that, we do well to, to recognize this. It is our faith that overcomes the world. But where there is faith, there will be faithfulness. Where God has done a work, there will be works being done for God. Why? Because that's the power of grace. That's the power of that transformation. And so, uh, the, so in the end, we don't say 
The victory is through our faithfulness, but through our faith. And that faith produces the faithfulness by God's power at work within us. Let's pray. Lord, as we...